Hello and thank you for listening to episode 303 of 60MW. I'm Dave. And I'm Tom. And this is another Decade of Decadence remastered interview show. And as you've probably already seen from the title, this one's with Russell Mulcahy. Somebody, I think, Tom, somebody who listens to these shows, obviously people have got an interest in the 80s. We don't really need to explain who Russell Mulcahy is, do we? No, whether you're interested in uh, musical movies, you, you probably know who Russell Mulcahy is. That's it. And we, and we do cover both of these uh, those subjects in this episode with his uh, music videos and his movies too. And again, and we keep saying this, mate, don't we? Always a thrill to talk to people. Always a real thrill as well when we get to talk to them. People whose you know, work we've admired for years and years. And they're really nice people, as was the case with Russell, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Shall we play? We've got to do it, mate. Tom guesses what date this was originally released <laughs> when we recorded it for 80s Picture House. Go oh. on, mate. When, when would you say this was? I'll give you a, I'll give you a bit of a clue. Um, it, it was one of the later interviews we did uh for those new oh. me and tom did a did a podcast called latest picture house we did i think we did 50 interview shows amongst everything else of people whose work we love from the 80s and russell was was one i don't know maybe three quarters of the way through that 50 well, so. i was thinking more like half so mm. um, okay uh i am going to say from three quarters of the way through i'll <sighs> <laughs> There's <laughs> a lot of deep sighing going this on. Um, <laughs> you have been close with a few. I'm going to say August 2015. Ooh, no, well, I say ooh in the in the in the scope of things at the, the time that we recorded it, not too bad. April 2014. Oh, pretty far out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I guess 2015 would have been near the end yeah. of what we interview. With the interviews, it, yeah, it's, but, it's a harder. It's, it's a hard thing to guess. It is. You have been close a few times, so, you know. Not this time. <laughs> Not this time. But yeah, um, everybody listening, you're in for a treat with us having a chat with Russell. I did look just a couple of minutes ago, mate, before we record this intro. Uh, I still got him on my Skype contacts, and he was online just a few days ago. Uh, so oh. maybe it could be one for a future sort of catch-up show. Who knows? Yeah, see what he's been up to and mm. what he's uh, seeing. Obviously, I'm sure he's got plenty up coming. Well, not. At the moment, but you know, <laughs> yeah. no one's got anything upcoming at the moment. That's but. it. And it's pretty quiet across all film. Although I did see, just very, very briefly, off topic, and we'll bring this up in the, in the next uh, Decade of Decadence show, uh, Stallone's back filming Samaritan. So that's something to talk about on that show. But in the meantime, everybody, sit back, get comfortable, and have a listen to me and Tom have a chat with Russell Mulcahy back from April 2014. Oh, and as always as well, back in 2014, we didn't have the equipment we've got now. Sound quality will be a, a little bit different, um, but the actual content itself is still red hot. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Let's bugger off and let them listen to us and Russell. Hi, Russell Mulcahy here, and welcome to the 80s Picture House with Dave and Tom. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the 80s Picture House and the 29th of our In Conversation With series. I'm Dave and as always I'm joined by my fellow co-host Tom. Hello. Uh, and today we're delighted to be joined by a man who uh, he not only directed some of the best music videos ever, not just in the, in the 1980s, he also directed 
some of the best movies ever, and we know that for sure because we've rewatched some of them recently, and we'll be talking about those very, very soon. And of course, we are in conversation with the great Russell Mulcahy. Hello, Russell. Hi, how are you, Dave and Tom? We're very, very good, I thank you. Uh, thank you so, so much for joining us. We've been really excited about chatting with you tonight. It's a pleasure. Uh, what we'd normally do, I mean, we sort of go usually in a, like a chronological way through people's careers, but what I'd like to do with you, if that's all right, I'd like to split it up into... Let's, let's, let's do the opposite. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to split it between like music videos and movies as well. Okay. Because uh, we talked to, to like the lovely Keith Williams like a few episodes ago, looking back at the history of music videos and his work. I'd, I want to start this with you with the obvious starting point with Video Killed the Radio Star. Now, you, you directed that. That was the first uh, music video scene on MTV. What I'd like to know is, how did a young boy born in Melbourne, Australia, said, what sort of journey was it to take you through to directing Video Killed the Radio Star? Um, an, an unexpected journey. Um, uh, I was um, a young man in uh, um, a small town called Wollongong, uh, which is about 50 miles south of Sydney in Australia. And uh, I started making short little late mill films and uh, there was a movie club there in the town. And uh, eventually I got a job at Channel 7 in Sydney cutting the news. And when I was cutting the news, I started on the side making music videos for Australian bands. And I was the, the only person doing it. Um and uh, this is a short story. And then the um, record company went, uh, we want you to go to England to shoot this uh, punk band called Garbo and the Death Cheaters. And uh, I'd never been overseas before. And so I got on a flight to England. And that was the old days. It was called the Kangaroo Flight um, because it was stopping like four different places to refuel. And it was 32 hours of flying. And... Um, Landed in England, um, went up to Birmingham, shot this band, and someone saw the clip in England, and I joined a video company. I was meant to be gone for two weeks. I left milk in the fridge back in Sydney. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I found myself staying in London for a couple of years um, doing music videos. And uh, one of the early ones I did was Video Kill the Radio Star. In those early years, uh, when you got a, a camera as well, was the temptation always? You always wanted to be behind the camera, and never in front of it. I well, actually, there was a point. I, I did I did a bit of acting on stage, amateur theatre, but I you know I picked up my first eight mil camera when I was like fourteen, um, and started making little little films and short films, and um, then the films got bigger, made something sixteen mil films and. Uh, Whatever, so it just it it progressed. It was always a passion, uh, but there was a point I I I was saying to myself, well, do I want to be an actor or I want to be a director? And uh, I think my passion was stronger as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. and I probably wasn't a very good actor. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, with with filming, as you said, then on using actual film you had to be dedicated because you had to pay for the film, you had to pay for it to be developed as well. So did that teach oh, yeah. you any early lessons about being frugal with your shots or anything? 
Well, especially with film. I mean, you don't have to be so frugal now with digital. Um, but with film, um, yes, you were, you were counting the seconds um, when you only had like 50, 50 foot of film left in your camera mm-hmm. and you couldn't afford any more film. So you would do a shot and you would cut it very quickly and uh, be very careful of the next shot. And so, um, uh, and also I would edit my own films. So I, 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 I learned at an early stage what shots were really necessary and what were sort of the bonus shots. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was, it was a self-education process. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think the music videos too. Um, I remember um, when I was in high school, I tried to um, uh, apply for the Australian Film School, and um, I made this uh, this film, and uh, they thought it was a little radical. It was um, it was it was titled "Rape of the Rutherfords," <laughs> and um, yes, <laughs> and. Um, well, I won't go into the details of the story, but um, um, uh, they they felt it wasn't quite um, sort of politically correct or whatever. And uh, so um, I think the music video route that I took, the route I took, uh, gave, gave me a lot of education in, in filmmaking and budgets and time and, you know, stress and whatever. And I learned from my, you know, my mistakes and experimented and um, whatever, yeah. And what was it like when Video Killed the Radio Star played on MTV then? Did you have any idea of, of what would become no, of the music I, videos? I think, no, I think when, when we shot it, we shot it in a, in a day. Um, we didn't, it, was a great, it was a great song. And, um, um, but no one quite knew what we were doing in respect of what impact it would have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, we just we just had fun shooting it, and Keith was with me at that time, and uh, and actually it was Keith who came up with the idea of the of the of the girl on the beach with the radio. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and but, and so then then the idea that I just grew grew up grew from that idea, um, but Keith Keith was integral in 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 those early days of, with the videos. Yeah, was it like bouncing ideas off each other? With oh yeah, you know. and it wasn't it wasn't only me. He worked with a number of directors mm. in London in, in that period. And it, I mean, I was looking through the list of the, the music videos that you directed, and it's it's astounding. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> um, well, there was a point where we were doing like like a video a week. We'd be editing one, we'd be in pre-production on one, and shooting another, all in the same week. Um, so yeah, it was it was fairly intense and late nights. And I remember I used I would hang black up against my windows because I would never know what time I would go to bed. <laughs> uh, so my my bedroom was just in darkness the whole time for a number of years. It seems though, just from the vibe from a lot of your videos, it must it must have been a fun time as well. Yes, it was, especially in the early periods, you know, with the Drans and the Elton Johns. Um, there was very little um, contact with the record company, so to speak, uh, and, uh, and and more contact just with the band, you know, their ideas and their notions and my ideas, and there was a very collaborative feel. 
and then we would go and shoot it and the record company then would look at it and see it and whatever um but um it, it was, there was a lot of creative freedom um in those in those days because i think it was such a new in, new industry so to speak um you could really um go out on a limb and um and push push some of the uh, the creative bars a little yeah am I, am I right in saying that on the elton john video i'm still standing oh. it was a lot of it was created just like on the day and is it also true you, fe- uh, you fell in the water as well with the camera well well, oh my God, you've heard all the stories. Oh, well, I've... You've probably heard all the stories, and some of them I can't repeat. <laughs> um, but um, um, yes, yeah, so it was. Um, it was. Uh, there was a script um, for the for the video, and um, the script was sent down to some pr- French production manager, and um, and then we turned up a couple of days before the shoot, or a day before the shoot, or whatever. And we said, okay, and there was meant to be a scene where a car was on a hill and the car lost its brakes, whatever, went careening down a hill and crashed through a, a shop window or whatever, yeah? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, yes, we've got a car, we've got a hill and a shop front, but you can't roll the car and you can't crash through the window. And it was like, okay. <laughs> and and so, like, everything was in the script was not organised. So... I thought it was a complete disaster, and um, so we Elton and so we started filming, and uh, and I'm actually filming a scene with Elton walking down the pier in, in Cannes outside the Carlton Hotel, um, and I accidentally slipped into the water oh, no. with the camera, um, so that was a little a little surprise awakening and. Um, <laughs> And the, the 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 funny thing about that, I had a big leather jacket. I was, it was quite chilly and boots and everything. And I went in with the camera, and um, I saw the last thing I remember seeing was the camera assistant dive in, but not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was sinking, and uh, he came up and I said, "I've got the camera," and I'm sort of like clinging to this sort of moss covered pylon and just sort of slipping and drowning. <laughs> Eventually, they dragged me out as this wet rat and put me through the lobby of the Carlton Hotel and very sort of sad and depressed, thinking, oh, God, the whole thing's a screw-up. And um, uh, Elton came up to the room and he just said to me, listen, why don't we just go down there? Or why don't you just come down and just we'll just make it up and just make just do what you want? Um and we had some dancers there, and we had the Fabers Arlene Phillips. And uh, so we actually just went down and just started filming stuff. <laughs> and, um, yeah, nothing organised. And uh, we had some guy that just started painting people colours and and whatever, and uh, it, was, it was made up on the fly. Wow. And it's such an iconic video as well. Yeah, because the energy amongst everyone was so good. And I remember on, we, it was, we shot it over two days. And I remember on the second day, it was dawn um, outside Cannes. In, in Cannes and uh, Elton had got up early and was there at the coffee machine, like serving coffee. <laughs> like, like making coffee for everyone. Like, Morning, dear. Hi, dear. <laughs> like, um, so everyone was just in this wonderful spirit. And I think it comes across in the video. Oh, yeah, it does. Definitely does. 
Um, much like with Elton John, you directed absolutely loads of videos for Duran Duran. What was it like working on them? Well, they they were terrific. The um, the the first video I did for them was Planet Earth, and I remember being outside this small little studio in London, and uh, in Camden somewhere, and um, this bus turns up, and these boys come off the bus all in their sort of like new romantic gear and whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, what, what the hell is this? And, <laughs> and, but I did, I did have a few sort of storyboard of um, of designs, like let's say Roger with the Earth and whatever. I had some sort of concept art I'd done, and um, and so we we just shot this video. There was really not much discussion. I mean, there was discussion a little bit with Paul and Michael Barrow, the two brothers. Uh, who managed the band, who were lovely, lovely men. And um, and the relationship just grew from there. Um, but it was always very much, with the Dran videos, it was very much Paul and Michael and me having a creative chat, and then Nick, uh, Simon, John, were also very, you know, loved sort of getting to have chats about the video and ideas. Um, and I think I think some of them, say for example, Hungry Like a Wolf um, or Rio. Uh, I remember Rio, for example. I think um, Paul wanted to go to Antigua to go sailing, so we <laughs> we said, "Okay, well, let's go shoot the video in Antigua then, and we'll do it on a boat and uh, and what, and we'll paint people bright colours and we'll shoot it like a Polaroid film and and uh, and, um, and again the idea just to just blossom from there. The whole thing was just based on um, this girl and lots of colour and blah, blah, blah. But it was really sort of an excuse to go to Antigua. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the same with Uncle Like a Wolf and Save a Prayer. It was, it was sort of an, an excuse to sort of go to Sri Lanka. And we went there a week beforehand. We travelled the island. And as we travelled the island, we wrote the script uh, it was me and uh, um, uh, a chap called Marcelo Anciano. Uh, and Eric Fellner produced it. Eric Fellner now has gone on to produce films like Billy Elliot and uh, uh, La Miserable and whatever. He's a dear friend. and um, But he produced a number of my videos like Ultravox and uh, some of the Drain videos and whatever. But basically, we we travelled around Sri Lanka, uh, from Gaul up to Kandy and whatever, and um, and wrote the scripts for like three videos. And as we got to each location, we would shoot a scene for Hungry Like a Wolf, and then we shoot another scene for Save a Prayer, um, and whatever. So it was um, this extraordinary road trip with just like ten people and the band and like, a small crew and. Um, we didn't, you know, do the videos. And you, it, the, the the wonderful thing, my memory of that was, I would say, can we have uh, two elephants, um, four <laughs> four young Buddhist people walking across the cliff at five a.m. in the morning, and you'd be driving up through the forest at four a.m. and you see the elephants being led up the road, and the Buddhists would be waiting, the young beautiful Buddhist uh, kids would be waiting for us, and. Um, it was just so extraordinarily beautiful. 
um, that, uh, yeah, that, that's very fond memories. Because this is a, a time as well, isn't it, when a good music video really had a positive effect on the record sales as well. It did. Um, um, and it, it, I think it took a while for everyone to realise that. Also, I, I, yeah, but um, um, it, uh, I remember when we, when we did the Reflex with Duran, um, which I think was their first number one hit in America. Um, I remember when the video came out, uh, there was such an extraordinary effect. Um, but one memory of the videos I do have is on the basis of Hungry Like a Wolf, um, a producer, Hal McElroy, uh, called me up and he said, I've seen Hungry Like a Wolf, would you like to come to Australia and do a feature film? And I said, yes, of course, I'd love, I'd love to. The second question I asked was, what's it about? <laughs> uh, I, I, just the idea of someone offering me a feature film was like, of course, yes. And then I found out it was about a giant pig, um, and, um, which I thought was fine. Um, and, uh, but so between going to Australia to do Razorback, I'd done all these videos like Total Clips of the Heart and True, um, a couple of um, an, an Elton video, an Ice House video, a True for Spano Ballet. Um, and so when I was shooting Razorback, all these videos were coming on and they're all getting number ones. Um, and so for about six months while I'm shooting, each num- each video was my video. It was like <laughs> number one, next thing I'm going to come number one, okay, number one. It was, it was quite a funny period. Oh, it, it must have been. It really must have been. Because we mentioned as well, just briefly to finish the, the music video bit, I I honestly didn't know until I was reading up today about that you directed Vienna with Ultravox. I mean, again, well, yeah. such an iconic video. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I think if I, was, if I was asked or whatever, I think Vienna and um, and the Wild Boys and I'm still standing, that's why I was called the Blues, uh, Allentown, uh, they're up there in my favourite videos that I've done. Um, but Vienna was very special. We shot that basically in London um, to look like Vienna. Um, and of course, I was still new to Europe and being overseas at that point. And uh, to the point where um, I didn't quite even know where Vienna was <laughs> when I was writing <laughs> the concept. And I was like, I went to the band and I said, okay, so we'll have these gondolas going down the canal. And they went, oh, that's Venice. I went, all right. <laughs> um, I was so Australian and so like sort of hooked into my sort of surfing and whatever. <laughs> so, so we quickly changed the concept with no gondolas. And um, so then we decided to do this sort of gothic story with sort of like the, the 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 sort of moral decay or whatever in Vienna or whatever some sort of crazy story whatever um, but um, I think it was the first video where we did this rather over the top Sunset Boulevardy type shooting where the person runs down the stairs and she turns and does this grandiose shoots the um, the young the young man um, and I think that was the first time anyone's ever been shot. Um, within the video, yeah. you know. Um, but it was so sort of melodramatic, uh, we got away with it, I think. 
<laughs> Obviously, we got away with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have any of uh, today's music videos caught your eyes? Does anybody impress you? Well, um, you know, I mean, uh, I've actually stopped watching videos because I don't know where they are anymore. Mm. Uh, mm. Apart from on YouTube or whatever, but uh, um, I don't really have time to do that. Um, but um, when I started um, coming, going more into feature films, um, you know, obviously there was Fincher was doing extraordinary work with with Madonna. Um, and uh, there's, there were a number, number of directors um, that, uh, that were really doing some really cool work. But what I'd like to do now, I mean, we could spend a whole show just chatting about your music videos with you, but we've got so many great films as well we want to chat with you about. The first one I want to bring up is a favorite. Well, not certainly great one, but anyway, oh. maybe it's a personal choice. <laughs> <laughs> 1979, Derek and Clive get the horn. Oh my God! No, I, I I I love Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and I love Derek and Clive get the horn. But this, I mean, you filmed this. This was at a stage in their career where it was breaking apart, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Dudley was going off to do ten, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was it was basically the, the last thing they were going to do together, and I think they both knew that. Hmm. Um, and I think that's why Richard Branson, um, he, he was wonderful. Um, but and, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons he wanted to you know, capture that that on film. And it was very bizarre, you know. We had I think it was three cameras and um, just in a studio in London at the Virgin Recording Studio and um, just filming um, this improvis- improvisational chat between two guys. Um, which is what Derek and Clive is. Um, and it's basically made up on the spot. Um, they don't really even have a general plot line <laughs> of what they're going to talk about. Um, usually, usually it was Peter who would sort of bring it up and then Dudley would respond and it would then turn into what bizarre way it did. Um, and, uh, and because it's film, we would have to time the cameras so we'd have one camera roll and then 30 seconds or 40 seconds later, the other camera would start rolling, and then 40 seconds later, the other camera would start rolling. So one camera would run out of film, and there'd be enough, uh, two other cameras would still be rolling as that camera's getting changed to film, and the other camera finishes its roll, that gets changed. So sometimes, you know, there was always, like, these mad rushing mags being put in. So, um, yeah. Were you a fan of them before you? Oh, yeah, I again? was. I was a huge fan. I mean, I remember listening to them um, in fits of laughter. And so it was a great joy. Um, and, and I'd seen them on film before, so it was a great joy to uh, to work with them. And, and, and terrific chaps. And uh, um, I sat with Peter probably the most um, during the editing. Um, and uh, late nights. I remember one night we was like quite late and we waited in and then we all, he took me off to the Ritz to the casino there and he went downstairs and he put $5,000 on red and it came up red and he got $10,000 from put it back in his pocket and said okay we're leaving now <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was that sort of like you know you, you, you uh, he was. Uh, they were. They were. They were incredible characters, completely different from each other, 
And I think that's probably what made it work. Oh, yeah. I find them hilarious. I really do. Mm. Mm. Um, going back to uh, a film that you mentioned. But, briefly, I never, uh... but I've never really regarded it as, as a film, so to speak. Um, mm. I know I know. the funny thing is you mentioned it. When I was doing um, Swimming Upstream with Jeffrey Rush, um, uh, it's one of his favourite films. And so we're in Queensland... Uh, filming this uh, this film with Jeffrey Rush and um, uh, Judy Davis and and Jesse Spencer, who now has gone on to do House and now Chicago Fire. Um, uh, but it was Jeffrey Jeffrey's one of his favorite films, so we had a screening of it. And I hadn't seen it for years, and uh, but I've never really regarded it as as a film; it's more of a, as a as a document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to Razorback uh, that we mentioned a few minutes ago, um, obviously it's your first theatrical film. What was it like working on that after the music videos or during? Um, it was, I think I saw I had my music video hat on. Um, luckily, I had the sanity of a great producer, Hal McElroy, uh, extraordinary GP of Dean Semler. Um, but I did bring my production designer from videos, uh, Bryce Wormsley, uh, and who also brought on a, um, a fabulous Australian art director, I forget his name now. And, um, so I had some sanity around me. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we, we shot it again. How... Let me go a little while. Dean was up for it. And so, you know, I had shadows moving and cut out moons stuck in the background, lit up and and it was a little unorthodox and um but it was yeah, you know, it was extraordinary because I remember when I was doing the videos, I hated the four by three format, the old square T V format. Yeah. So some of the early videos I did I used to crop the top and bottom with black to make them look more like movies. And I remember the first one I sent over, we sent to MTV, they rang up and they said, oh, God, we have a technical problem with the video, um, but it's okay, we've blown it up. Um, and then, you know, enlarged it and panned and scanned oh, it. No. It had black bottom, black stripes. Um, top, and I said, no, 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 that's intentional. And... Um, so going on to do Razorback, not only was it a feature film, we also shot it in true anamorphic to you know, two two three um, cinemascope. So there I am in the Australian desert with cinemascope, and I don't know, and it was like big thirty five mil Panavision cameras. I'd never, I mean, I'd done everything on sixteen mil film before, and uh, it was uh, quite a rush. Uh, but I do remember the first day of shooting. Uh, was in, up in Silverton, a little opal mining town, and um, in Australia, in the outback. And um, I remember getting up at three o'clock in the morning and going sitting on a hill and uh, watching, looking at the stars and the and going, holy fuck! <laughs> 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 and but basically, the crew turned up, and the, I used to call that the roller coaster. You know, you go up that hill, your stomach, your butterflies are raging in your stomach, and then the roller coaster just goes. 
and there's no stopping it and you just go for the ride and you hold on and and yeah and and that feeling has never stopped it maybe subsided a little bit of the butterflies but uh even to this day uh the night before an issue um uh the morning of we still have that which i think is probably a healthy thing you know to have that oh yeah nervous or whatever you know and then again the roller coaster starts and boom the day's over before you know it and and you have no idea what you just did <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love Razorback, and uh, I think you did a fantastic job on it, because I remember when it came into the video store, and I picked it up, and I read the back of it, and I thought, this, this is going to be <laughs> terrible. How can how can this, like, <laughs> there can't be any tension or any scares about this. It's just about, like a big a big pig. And then I watched it, and it scared the shit out of me. It was, <laughs> I, and it's, I watched it again uh, just the other week. Um, you know, luckily, in this day and age, we've got the DVDs and Blu-rays, and a widescreen DVD. And right. it looks magnificent. It, it, you yeah. know, you give it a really good look, and the way you create the tension with it. I mean, yeah. How how uh, on earth did you, did you plan that? Because on paper, did you think of it? Well, it's a big pig. What can what can I do? Yeah, I mean, um, and this is, is before CG, and yeah. um, you know, we we had a mechanic. Basically, the truth is, we had a mechanical pig head, which was quite good for the close-ups. Um, we had another one they spent a little bit too much money on, and it was actually designed before I came on. Um, I was already in commissioned. Um, this one that was meant to run, <laughs> it never did. A bit like uh, Dealer Enterprises King Kong. Um, um, it, yeah. So the basically, I, I ended up using the head, and I found the best thing to do was we just got a very big pig and we put a blanket over it with some fake horns and and put it in the distance in silhouette and or in the pet package and with lots of steam and shook the camera a lot <laughs> and um, moved the camera and um, the real pig with a blanket over it with a with you know polish you know foam foam horns and tusks um, is probably the best looking thing in the show um, and it cost ten dollars. <laughs> And um, but the other one cost a quarter of a million dollars and didn't work. Whoa! Yeah, I mean, I love the shot where the guy's watching the TV, and the whole corner of his okay. house gets ripped away and just goes off into and, the distance. And, and, and the good old Don Lane, yes, yes, yes. I mean, to- totally improbable, totally incorrect. Uh, the, you know, the, the power stayed on that long and all that. Um, but uh, um, I, I think once you set. I think in any film, any film has its own world, and you can you can set up your rules near the beginning, uh, what what your story is going to be, what your world is going to be, and as long as you stick within those rules that you have set up for your game, um, then the audience will go for the ride. I think. Oh yeah, I I buy straight into it every time I watch Razorback. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean in a regular film. If it was just da, 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 and then all of a sudden this TV gets torn off in the desert and it's still playing, you'd go, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I'd created a slightly alternative universe. <laughs> Whatever. Um, it's it's a, it's, a, it's so funny. It's, it's uh, when we do Team Wolf, it's um, um, and some of the questions. 
I mean, but you know, there's a lot of reality in it, but if there's some minor detail of a reality, you go, well, hang on, it's a show about werewolves. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, I think we have a certain license. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like the first time that you saw Razorback on the big screen to see your work in a cinema? It was fantastic. It was at a uh, cinema in Westwood. It was not a big hit in America um, when it opened. Um, I think it opened in a few cinemas. And um, so it opened in a few cinemas. I don't think they understood it. The studio didn't understand it. So they put it out. Uh, quite, but a nice poster. And um, But then a friend of mine, Patrick Washberger, um, who uh, was a great champion and a good dear friend, uh, saw it and bought it off Warner's and um, took it to France and and it became quite a hit in Europe. Um, and then history goes on from there. Similar thing happened to Highlander. Mm. Um, it didn't really work in America. And um, all of a sudden it was this gigantic hit in Paris and Germany and wherever and, and it spread from there. I mean, Highlander was huge over here it was such a big hit yeah yeah and again in america it lasted three days well that's crazy that's really crazy uh, yeah i don't i don't know if you've ever seen the american poster um yeah, unfortunately i have yes <laughs> yeah the black and white one. Oh, it's awful yeah? yeah well yeah i mean it's basically a blow up of a wide shot and they're blowing it up into a close-up of christoph he's got bad acne or whatever and and uh uh, and the film—it looks like it's a, it's a film about a, a murderer or a serial rapist or whatever. You have no idea what the film's about. Yeah. Um, and it's it's it's, it's the most destructive poster. I think it was done for a reason, um, because they they didn't really whatever. Um, but then but then you see the posters that were done in England and France and Japan and whatever, uh, and they captured the spirit of the film. And it's got such an amazing soundtrack as well, that film. Well, yeah, Highlander was... Um, I'd done Razorback, and then I came back and did some more videos. And um, and I remember I was in the editing room cutting something. Um, and I got this phone call from these guys, Peter Davis and uh, Bill Panzer. And they said... Uh, they sent me the script, and they said, you want to come out and have a chat? I read it and went over and said, this is fantastic. It's like, it's like this incredible ro- ro- fantasy, but with this incredible romance that goes through centuries and it's got, it's got everything. Um, and uh, I think EMI was, was one of the finances of it. And I think I'd just done the Wild Boys and whatever um, with the EMI records. Um, and then all of a sudden I, I got the film. Um, and uh, it was an extraordinary marriage with with the with the music, for example. Um, I said, "Why don't we use Queen?" And and they saw a few scenes, and they went, "Absolutely, we'd love to do it." Because um, I really like the, the stuff. I love Queen anyway, but I like I really like what they do with Flash Gordon, um, and. Uh, and then we brought in Michael Kamen, um, the composer. And he used to be in the uh, rock and roll. He was a rock and roller. So he and Queen got along famously. Um, 
and they could work together. Um, so we'd say, for example, Brian May, each, each band member wrote a separate song. Brian May wrote Who Wants to Live Forever. Um, Roger wrote It's a Kind of Magic, for example. Um, uh, and Freddie wrote uh, Prince of the Universe and, and, and went on like that. And so, for example, with Brian, he would get together with uh, Michael Kamen and uh, they would work out the orchestra is here, then the song comes in, then the orchestra takes over, then the song comes back. And it was just this extraordinary marriage of two different entities coming together. And did you have any idea at the time of what a huge hit this film has turned out to be, how people look back so no. fondly at it? No. Um, it was, a, again, a fun film to do. I was amazed. It, it, okay, so we sat down in Hollywood and we're in pre-production. You didn't know who was going to be in it. And I'm flipping through a magazine and I come across this picture of Christopher Lambert from Greystoke. And uh, he had these most extraordinary eyes. And I said, what about him? And everyone went, fuck, yeah, he's so good. Mm-hmm. And um, so we contacted, we, and so he agreed to do it, but we realised he couldn't speak much English. <laughs> so, so um, but we went, okay, we can live with that. Um, so he got a, got a, got a, a coach and whatever, and um, he, he learned fast. And, um, but it was so, and then, then it was like, and they were thinking of Sean Connery, and it was like brilliant. Um, but first, he wants a meeting with you. So I remember going to the Savoy Hotel to meet Sean Connery. And obviously, growing up, being a huge James Bond fan, uh, I'm outside the door and knock on the door and thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to meet James Bond. Oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and the door opens, and there he is sitting there. And he's as tall as you think he is, and he's like, a presence that you believe, yeah, everything was true. I was like, wow. Um, but then he was so charming. We sat down, we had a cup of tea and da da da, and this and that. And we had just a really good chat. And uh, um, yeah, it was really good. He's a very, very smart man. Uh, we had him for seven days on the shoot. And uh, it was a mad seven days. We had to actually shoot Sean. Every shot was like, I had to shoot him because it was only seven days. Um, and I had to shoot over Christoph's shoulder. And then when we'd shoot Christoph's coverage a couple of weeks later, we'd have to shoot over a double shoulder. Um, and so Christoph was still fairly green in respect to that. So he didn't really bitch too much. And uh, <laughs> he knew the parameters of what we had to do. And I remember the last day of Sean Connery is. Uh, he was absolutely terrific, but he, we were shooting, and if he'd gone like an hour over or a day over, it was going to cost a vast amount of money. And he said to me, uh, "You're not going to finish with me, are you, Lenny?" And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, "I had two cameras." And I said, "Just go in there, and we put it against a neutral background." And I said, "Okay, everyone rolled." And said, "Okay, now turn, laugh." Turn back, be angry, look left, look left, look right, raise your sword, do this, do that, put a hat on, do, 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 boom, boom, boom. And shot for like three minutes and watching my clock. And I got to the time and cut. And he went, you 
bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I think he lost quite a bit of money. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, he retired from movies too soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it could have been... Well, there was a certain film that he didn't... One of his later films that I don't think he really enjoyed doing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you? And I'll leave you to guess that one. Oh, oh yeah, I know which one it was. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, can I ask about Rambo Three? It's okay. Um, I know. Am I right in saying you were the director for two weeks? Um, actually, shoot, yes, I was on pre-production. God, goes a lot longer than that. Now I've uh, read so many different things. The reason I ask, I'm and everybody knows, a big Sylvester Stallone fan, a big Rambo fan. I would have loved to have seen you directing Rambo 3. Right. Well, so what happened is that I was the Highlander, and the sad part of the story is that um, I'd done that, and I was in chats with Dino Dillon just to do Total Recall. Ah. And I was meeting, I was meeting Ron Chuzette, the writer, and all that. And, uh, and all of a sudden... Um, Sly calls me up. So he calls me up in London. And he said, um, Highlander, I'd love you to come and do Rambo 3. And I got a little starstruck and went, yes, okay. Um, and <laughs> big mistake. Anyway, um, so... We did a lot of pre-production, but we got along. Yeah, I mean, we got along famously. Um, and uh, but I do remember the day that me and the assistant director left the Tel Aviv to go down to the Dead Sea, where the first week of shooting was going to be. We built we built this gigantic fort on this cliff um, above the Dead Sea, and. Um, this Russian fort or Gaskin, yeah, Russian fort. And uh, um, I remember leaving the hotel in Tel Aviv and me and the assistant director looked at each other and said, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> and it was this horrible feeling. It was like, it was like, we don't even watch Rambo films. <laughs> um, it was really weird. <laughs> it, was like, it was like this... Very depressing ride. <laughs> and anyway, so we started shooting and Sly wasn't there for the first couple of days, filming away. And then we started getting to the fort and I'm filming the fort and this big set with helicopters and lots of extras and da da da. And then Sly turned up and I wanted to capture, I was filming against my style and he took me into his trailer one night, first he fired the DP. He didn't like. He thought that was the problem. So the DP was fired. Um, then uh, we we carried on shooting, and then he took me to his trailer and showed me a bit of Rambo Two, and he said it was all these close-ups, gigantic close-ups of just his eyes and mouth, and just even less than his mouth. And he said, "It's all there. It's all there. That's all you need to shoot." And I said, but I can shoot those in Burbank. <laughs> um, it's 4 a.m. in the morning. We're on the cliff of the Dead Sea with this 300 extras and helicopters and a gigantic million-dollar set. Um, 
And so we had a creative difference. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I, um, yeah, we left, we part of company. Oh, that's a pity. I would still love to have seen your version of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, um, it, it, it was fine. Yeah. Um, but I, I do remember the plane trip back. Um, I was so zonked. Um, I sort of like got by the hotel packed. Da, 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 da. I got on a plane on the LL Airlines. And, um, this is way before the big security issues of airlines these days. And um, even though even though still they were pretty tight on their security, they would interview you twice before you got on the plane. Um, even though I said, you know me by now, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you still get interviewed. And, and God bless them. And um, um, so I, I, I go upstairs. It was a first class. So I, so I go upstairs. I, I go to the back because I just want to go to sleep. And I think I saw my pyjama bottoms on. And um, I look up and there's these, these suits, I call them suits, these guys in suits or whatever. About 10 of them get on and they sit up the front of the section. And I, get and I, and I go to sleep. And we land in, in London and we all get up with, and I follow them down the spiral staircase and everyone's been held back and I just follow these guys down the corridor, down the, run, down the courseway. And all of a sudden, there's some English policemen, Bobby's there, standing there. And we all turn left. We go down some more stairs. I'm still following the guys. And then we open some doors. I go with them. And all of a sudden, we're outside the airport. And I go, I'm thinking to myself, what happened to customs and immigration? <laughs> and eventually, one of them turns around to me. And it was the prime minister of Israel. <laughs> and he looks at me. And then I feel a tap on my shoulder and there's an English cop behind me. Going, and I went, oh, I just followed them like sheep. I don't know. <laughs> and I was led back inside. Because um, all these black limos were turning up. <laughs> and I think upstairs the, the English uh, police probably thought I was just his weird cousin or something. And they didn't want to like, embarrass you know, the other, you know, the entourage. And they just thought oh, he brought his weird, you know, Cousin, <laughs> that's my that's my favourite Rambo story. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good segue, really, because um, just last night I rewatched Highlander two, and I watched. Um, oh my god! I I I borrowed off off Ramrod, my movie watching friend. He's got the two disc special edition the, with the new effects and everything in, and in uh, one of the extras on the that second. That must be about four three. It must be like it's fourth or fifth or sixth re-re-release. It's got to be, like yeah. The, Re- the Renegade version, the uh, yeah. Troubadour version, the Razzle <laughs> So which version have you got? This is, I think this is like the, I'm not sure it's, the, it's got to be the definitive version because it's two days. Oh, the definitive version, yeah, okay. the definitive Renegade I version. I have that one. <laughs> okay. But I'd like to you, if you, um, if you could, to tell the listeners, because you've got a great story about an interesting plane ride that you had to... Argentina, where the the weather was not quite too calm. Oh yeah, that was um. Well, there were many interesting stories about Highlander Two. Um, one is that I should never have done it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, I signed the contract and then read the script. 
Um, and we, I changed agents after that. Um, but anyway, so the train, the, the plane trip, um, we were scouting for locations and, um, unfortunately what happened is that sort of something when someone wants you to come film somewhere, they'll show you all these grand locations. And then when you get down to the, the nitty gritty of actually production, you realize you can't afford to go to all these places anyway. Um, and you're stuck in town. Um, but anyway, so we, we did go on this scout up into the Andes and this plane, and there was two small planes, and I was with one of the producers and the production designer and some other person, and the other plane was another producer, and one of the, the Argentinian producer's son was in the other plane. So we're going into the Andes, and we hit bad weather, and this plane was getting thrown around like crazy. People were like, things were just going crazy. One of the producers went into this state of shock where... Yeah, he went just like white, looked like he was about to die. Um, and, and the captain and they all even had oxygen masks on. And and uh, I basically, I, I'd already accepted death. I just <laughs> was hoping it was going to be quick. Um, but I've never been thrown around a plane so much. Anyway, we did land on this sort of um, mud flat. And we landed and got off and kissed the ground. And... <laughs> Then the, the worst thing was is then we waited for the other plane and it never showed up. And the Argentinian producer, obviously, was completely distraught. Um, and what had happened is the other plane had turned back. We didn't know. <laughs> so then we waited for a while. We looked around and we had to fly down to, to another location, um, a dam and down the bottom of the Andes and they were going to fly down there and I, and I was with the, other, with the producer who was just shaking, still in shock and he wouldn't get on the plane and I said, oh, I'll stay with him. And so they all got on the plane took off and luckily this truck had turned up with some water for us. That had been pre-organised. So we just got back on in the back of this old truck, this open deck truck, um, and we travelled down this road, down the Andes, and this very narrow road with like you know, sort of thousand foot drops, and we're going very fast around these sharp corners. And uh, it was, it was like something that Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was just, <laughs> it was like these sheer drops, and we're like the wheels like rock boulders are falling as the tires hit, and it was like. But it still felt safer than the plane. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so after about two hours of that trip, um, we found a little village and we gave the uh, producer some chicken soup. This this lady made some chicken soup and he rested for a little bit and then everything was fine. <laughs> and, and the other and the sun was fine too because the plane, the other part was wise enough to turn back. Ah, right. <laughs> I mean, you were under like, so many different pressures making that film. There was so much going well, on. Apart from, apart from uh, not a great script, uh, apart from breaking every rule, when I talked about breaking rules in, in, in your story, I mean, Highlander 1 was meant to be a singular film, um, and I don't think anyone expected it to make a sequel. Um, I mean, if they were smart, they would have written it in such a way, uh, maybe. Um, but it was always meant to be, a, you know, he, he won the prize, 
he was the there can only be one. Um, he became mortal, and boom, film finishes. Mm-hmm. And um, so then they were in the, in the after it became a hit in Europe, and then you wanted to make a sequel. They had to contrive some crazy story, and I think there was a few versions out there with varying stories of planets and this and that. So, um, but probably the most apart from shooting a script that didn't really make sense, um, and also the inflation rate to skyrocketed in Argentina at the time. So one day, orange juice cost a dollar and uh, two days later it was six dollars um you sort of knew something was going wrong um and so the set started getting smaller and smaller and couldn't do this and couldn't do that and it was a struggle um but i think probably the biggest struggle was the fact that i had a stalker um who was sending me death threats and um oh my god yeah, so I, I had to have, like, this security, um, this armed guy who would, who would swap because I could be with me 24-7. Um, and the most bizarre letters and horrible paintings. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, so I had someone sitting outside my room with a gun. I had someone in the car with me. I had someone go to the toilet with me. Uh, whatever. Eventually, she turned up on set in the crowd one night and they found her and they got her. But, uh, yeah, that was pretty scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was this, would you say, one of the most, or maybe the most frustrating experience you had as a director then, working on Highlander 2? Um, I don't know about the most frustrating. It was, it was, a, it was probably one of the most exhausting because it was, we shot for six-day weeks, for 12 weeks, and it was basically all night shooting. Um, so it was exhausting. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling because I didn't believe in the project that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, I, I, I learned, I think I'm still learning, but I learned a very hard lesson then. You know, you ha- your heart has to be in it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's 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 hard enough. Even when your heart's in it, it's hard work. And um, but if your heart's not in it, it just makes it miserable work. I don't I don't mind hard work. It's fun. It's good. Um, but you know, if your heart's not in it, then then it's just miserable. Well, I know that. I, I guess no one's gonna be watching that video anymore. <laughs> <laughs> No, I gotta admit, I did. I enjoyed rewatching it. I hadn't seen it for a long time, and um, the ver- like you said, there's so many different versions out there. This the version that I, that's on this particular DVD I'd never seen before, so it was interesting to watch it. It had been edited different, you know, and it, the way it changes yeah. the, the I mean, story yeah, I, a little I, bit. I, I I think there are some good scenes, um, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I think Virginia is fabulous in it, and uh, Mark Ironside and. You know, I mean, listen. I, I I think there are some some decent scenes. It just it just it does it doesn't have the, the the story, and it doesn't have. I don't think it has the heart and soul of the first one. Yeah, I think that's the difference, isn't it? it is, the first one's got a lot of heart, really has. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, like Dave watching Highlander 2 yesterday, I watched one of your, your films earlier, and it's one I absolutely adore, and that's Ricochet. So if you've got any, any stories about that, please. Uh, only, only good ones. Um, um, it was uh, Joel Silver, producer. Um, what can I say? I had Denzel Washington. I had John Lithgow, who I'd been a huge fan of. Um, and... Uh, Cool script and shooting. I mean, it was it was it was a really enjoyable, just a great shoot, and uh, um, a very and Joel is an incredibly supportive producer um, with directors. If if he feels, I guess, um, the director's got a vision or is doing it or whatever, uh, he's hundred hundred percent supportive. Um, so it, that was a really great experience. and uh, But it was extraordinary watching the, the two methods of acting, too, with, between Denzel and John. Denzel's very focused um, uh, method, uh, very intense actor, and sometimes would, you know, seems to hold the character in within himself all day, nearly. Mm. Um Whereas John is a different type of actor where he'll turn it on for the performance and then after, and after cut, he's back to John Lithgow. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, and I respect both styles, um, um, whatever makes it work, and they both make it work. Um, so it was just, a, just an absolute pleasure working with these two giants of talent. Um, yeah, it was great. It was a good experience. I always found it fascinating as well because you know it's the early nineties. The scene at the beginning, where uh, Denzel Washington as the cop he drops his pants and he twists and fires, and the, oh, right. the, but there's a guy there's a guy filming it on a little camera and it gets uploaded. and It goes onto the local news. Well, it's like nowadays this happens all the time. People with the smartphones, the film. Oh, people with the phone now. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is so funny that. Um, one little shot like that will date the film, and you could probably like nearly carbon date the film by <laughs> by looking at the phone people are using. I, and I find myself doing it too, watching a film and going, "Can't quite pick the period." And then they flip their phone, and, and sometimes it's the old sort, you know, the Nokia flip phones or whatever. Oh yeah. yeah. So you can nearly pinpoint this sort of you know the early nineties or ninety. Seventy-eight, whatever. You know. So you can by by the telephones or whatever or cameras, uh, you can actually date films now. Yeah, I just thought it was so good. It's showing you it was like a vision of the future of this. This is going to be <laughs> happening all the time. People are going to be filming oh, news true. events. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I want to ask as well, briefly. I know we're getting a bit pushed for time, Russell. I don't want to keep you too long because you're such a busy okay. guy. Um, Resident Evil Extinction. I know uh, we're, we're good friends with a, a video game podcast and they, they would kill me if I didn't ask a question about this. Were you, were you a fan of the games before you signed on to direct no. the film? You weren't, no? No. Uh, you... no. Um, but I, I, knew, I knew Paul um, uh, since uh, Mortal Kombat um, because Christoph was in that so I went and visited him. So I was friends with Paul. Uh, I knew Jeremy Bolt, the producer. Uh, the funny thing is Jeremy Bolt used to be a runner for me when for my video production company in London, and uh, and he remembers more than me, but he remembers being a runner for the for the video company. 
Um, so when they asked me to do it, I was thrilled. Um, again, I didn't really know that much about it. I read the script and then I sort of drew up some storyboards and some ideas and then went to the meeting and we, it was a great meeting, got the job, da, da, da. And then they sat me down and what, and what they did is they, they put this video together of the video game where you didn't have to play it. Um, basically just ran you through the video game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I don't know how to play those things. They're, yeah. They're too fast. Mm. Um, <laughs> not too good in the toggles. Um, and, um, um, so yeah, so I, I, uh, I learned that and obviously I watched the other, the other, the other films. Um, but Mila was just a delight and just great, again, great cast. And actually Lyndon, who's in the film, who gets killed in the film on the Idol Tower, um, Lyndon Ashbury, the actor, mm. um, um, he's in Team Wolf now. Um, ah, so, so it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. He plays, um, Styles' dad. Do you have Team Wolf over there? We don't yet, do we, Tom? No, no, it hasn't come over. No, not yet. It's oh, strange. Well, you, you can get it on iTunes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's ways and means of. of there's always it. ways. And there's means. ways and means. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> uh, to come on, that it's not appeared on national TV yet, though. What all? Oh, there you and, go. Uh, you need to get onto them to get it over here. Oh my God, we're shooting season four. You're going to have a bit to catch up on. Oh my word, we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Russell, it's been. A pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, is there is there any way that... if if if, uh, if I said anything too too horrible about um, Highlander Two, can you cut that out? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, I probably killed the sales on that one. Oh, God. You didn't know. You didn't. No, I think we're okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just talk about the stalker. <laughs> Oh, it was it was lovely for you to spend some time with us, and we really appreciate it because we're both both big fans. Okay, fantastic. All right, all right. I'll talk to you soon. We'll do. Thanks, Russell. All Thanks, right. Russell. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.